Hello and welcome to episode 138 of the Good Good Golf Podcast. Rod Murray ironing a shirt in readiness for the day's play as we shift gears this week from all the serious talk of rollback and live to a pace more in keeping with our comfort level here. Today we meet Matt Burns from the Angus and Grace Go Golfing Company to talk all things golf apparel, as Logue likes to say, <laughs> and fashion, but more than that, perhaps what those things tell us about the changing nature of the game and the people who play it. Matt along in just a moment, but first to the usual good, good suspects and my co-hosts starting with Adrian Logan. Logue, I've saved you from trying to think of a segue into mentioning our sponsor today, and I'm sure that you'll repay me in some measurable way for that. Yeah, I'm not sure if we have to declare that this... Uh, you know, our guest today is our sponsor. This is advertorial. It's advertorial. Bought and, pa- bought and paid for comment. I want our listeners to know this is not going to be any sort of puff piece, though. We're gonna, there'll be some hard-hitting questions yeah. asked of Matt on this podcast. So. I'm hoping you brought those. <laughs> yeah. I haven't, I haven't sure. got any of them here, so <laughs> that'll be good. Also in studio, Golf Australia Magazine Deputy and Digital Editor, Jimmy Emanuel. Jimmy, are you, Jimmy, you also owe me because I've saved you the trouble of finding out more about the environmentally sustainable cotton Matt uses in his garments. So it's a profitable episode for me. You owe me as well. No, like a good journal, I've gone to the source to get a quote to explain it better than me. <laughs> and instead gone with the, the more popular thing these days. Could you write a piece for us? Absolutely. <laughs> and I'm excited. This is two weeks, two mats in a row as guests. Ooh, that is two. Yeah. So I want to go for the hat trick next week. So I'm starting thinking of mats in golf. So Goggin is the only yeah. one that comes He's only got one tee though. Yeah, that's right. What other mats are there in golf? I Matt Wallace. I don't Matt know Wallace. if he'll I, come on. I doubt he'll be up for the show. I don't know. If Matthew Wolfe? I also doubt he I will doubt be he too be. keen. <laughs> Enough of that. Matthew Faldo. There you go. We'll get him let's, get, let's get to our guest today. Matt Burns. Oh, it is Matt Burns, isn't it? Yeah. yeah thanks for that. Uh, <laughs> joins us in the studio, though, disappointingly, minus Angus and Grace. Mate, welcome. Before we dive into the world of golf, fashion, disruption, and all of that, tell the listeners who are Angus and Grace and how they inspired the name of the brand. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. The least we could do. Yeah. Very, <laughs> exci- very excited to be here. Angus and Grace are actually my dog's. Angus is slightly older than Grace, but I thought it was a nice little. Uh, what flavour? They are West Highland White Terriers. They're little uh, little white my dog dogs, no. um, and they're very sweet. And well, we do men's and women's wear, so I thought Angus and Grace go golfing was kind of a nice idea that we can all do it together. You know, well, I'm glad we got through the hard hitting questions. So the the titular yeah. Angus and Grace. <laughs> titular, titular Angus. And thank Grace. God. Yeah, and Indeed. also the great of everyone just assuming that Matt's name is Angus. I like it. I get a lot of emails saying, hi, Angus, <laughs> yeah, which, which I quite like. Which I, don't, often, upon I don't always correct them. Yeah. I get a lot of emails saying, hi, golf. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I won't tell you about some of the emails I've got. I've got some memberships to places that – anyway, uh, enough of all that. The world of uh, fashion and apparel and golf clothing, how did you find yourself in that? What does it tell us about the game? Uh, well, the first part, how I found myself in it, like I did my um, degree at UTS in fashion, and then I worked uh, I worked in major major tailoring for about uh, five years. But I always kind of played golf, especially kind of after like post high school, and then could never really find anything I liked. Could never really find anything of like any great quality that I really wanted to like. I couldn't find any golf brands that I wanted to buy or like looked up to. And I was, you know, had a lot of uh, experience in clothing, so I was like, well. Why can't we do it ourselves? Really, that was kind of. It was more to fix a problem than than anything else. I think. Is there something generational in this? I don't know. You, you guys are different to me. None of that ever has has ever or did ever interest me. I never looked for a golf brand that I liked. I've never gone looking for clothes that I liked. Am I an outlier, or has there been a generational change? No, I don't think you're an outlier at all. I just think it's probably more of a me thing than anything else. Where, like, I kind of grew up playing a lot of sports and stuff like that, but. 
um, was never like the kind of star of anything sporting wise. Like I'm, I'm a decent golfer, but there was never any aspirations for me to go pro or anything like that. Um, so it was more like, you know, how do we like kind of get new stuff and look cool? That's always been a bit more what I'm interested in is like something that I can control is how I look. Mm. So, um, I guess I just kept pursuing it from there. So it, you know, like you could, the great thing about golf is you can wear a $5 polo shirt or, you know, one that you found or one that you got given, or you can go and seek out whatever you want. It's a great sport for choice in that way. So for me, it was just like, I couldn't find what I was looking for. So let's just make mm. it, you know, what do you reckon? Like, is that generational? Why am I not interested? You are, you take care in the way you dress and appear. And so do you, Jimmy, most younger people do. I never have most of the blokes I grew up with never did either. Uh, I'm not too sure, but it's it's something – it's a personal thing. I don't think it's generational because I think it, it goes across all generations. Um, but at some point, for me at least, I, I can just speak to that experience. I, I had a similar thing. Was like I wasn't inclined to go and make my own clothing line, but uh, I got very frustrated with um, with golf clothes. I just I thought – I just think they generally look a little bit silly, especially out of a golf context and – uh, I, I went in search of street clothes that can work on the golf course, and uh, that that was that's something I've been trying to find for years. And uh, I think Angus and Grace Go Golfing as a brand does that very well. Mm. But yeah, I, I don't think I'm alone with that. People trying to find because I also don't like logos and stuff, so I like having plain stuff without logos on it. Um, Unless it's Angus and Grace go golfing, of course. In which case, you're proud to. Yeah, although even Matt, but Matt's branding is very subtle. <laughs> a little. I think it's. A, I think it's a personal thing for sure. Well, I grew up in a family where fashion and stuff was a big part of my life. It was we owned a sewing shop when I was a kid, so my mum made all my own clothes when I was a kid. So I grew up around looking your best. And when I went to play golf, she taught me certain rules about what you match up and what you do. And so it kind of makes sense to me. And I'm very much like Logue that. A lot of the stuff that was out there, I didn't like, and I hate as much as my life is golf looking like a golfer when I'm not at a golf course. So finding clothes that could go everywhere is a, was a bigger part for me. The only logos generally are tournament or golf courses I go to visit, and even then, I think it's a bit much looking like Barry Bagtag when you walk around coming in all sorts of things. <laughs> that, that logo collection group is when someone of... looks like <laughs> I mean, you know I'm a graphic that. designer threw up on them when they yeah. show up to play. Yeah. My old man's like that. He went Formula on a golf trip. Car. He went on a golf trip to Mornington Peninsula last week. He would have teed it up every day in a master shirt or hat, an open thing, a logo from somewhere. Never been to any of them. It's just from me and my work trips that. But he would have been covered in them. Should start getting some really. We could buy some really interesting stuff, Jimmy. <laughs> so, okay, well, I now feel like a lion in a den of Christians. I'm the only one who doesn't give a rat's about how I look. What you're talking about there, Matt, I've heard over the years from a lot of women in golf. Women come to the game, they like the game, they look at the clothes that are on offer for, for playing golf, and they're terrible. I think that's less the case these days. <clears throat> Pardon me, the LPGA's done a great job. Their players look fabulous. These days. But it has the same kind of thing, isn't it? Golf kind of shoots itself in the foot at some point with people who really want to engage with it, but there'll be silly rules about the clubhouse. There'll be silly rules about what you get to wear. Is that changing, I guess? Does the exi- the very existence of Angus and Grace Go Golfing tell us that there's something changing in that, in that space? Uh, I think it actually kind of works in two different ways where you've got – there are certainly some clubs that are getting a lot more lenient with how you dress and stuff. And there's a big thing in golf more towards like more of a streetwear look. But then there's also, I think a big problem that golf clothing has is it tries to look like cycling gear or tennis gear. And it's, mm-hmm. it's really overly athletic. And 
you know, anyone that's listening to this has been to plenty of golf courses as well. Like, we're not the most overly athletic bunch, nor do we have to move that fast or anything like that. I think the clothing should be more beautifully made and be more comfortable rather than, you know, we, we're not running like in tennis and we, we don't need the aerodynamicness of cycling. And with those kind of fabrics and that kind of cut, it's quite unflattering on most body shapes. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not trying to get... I'm not trying to squeeze people into the smallest polo I can to help your swing speed out. It's. I think the thing for me is like, why don't we just make nice stuff that you feel really comfortable in that's flattering to wear as well more than anything else. There's nothing worse than kind of seeing a, an old guy with a big belly at a golf course with a tight Nike shirt on that's stretch. Uh, you know, all the stretch is doing is kind of showing off his belly. Mm. That's not, like, flattering. That's not, like, good fashion to me. Yeah. Versus, like, why don't we just get you in something that's really nice and breathable and fits a bit looser and you're more comfortable. And that's that, – I think, for me, that's making good clothing because it's, it's selling to the people that are wearing it. You're making me think, wouldn't it be a good TV to have a fat tour de France? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> fat blokes only. And then they could cycle across small parts of France and not the whole thing. Do we know how big the uh, golf clothing industry is? Not expecting you with figures, but do we know how big it is? Uh, look, I don't know. It's like you know, like everything in Australia, I think we're a little bit behind. Uh, the US is kind of, you know, too wide of a mountain range to to kind of get an idea of what that's about. I'm just actually in um, uh, in Asia, in Japan, and Korea, and the golf landscape over there is completely different. You know, oh, like right. what do you mean? Well, in Korea, it's the biggest. Uh, it's the biggest sport. It's huge business it's like massively aspirational to play golf i mean the simulated golf is very big but to go and play golf just even like a public golf course is hugely aspirational and you know there's a there's whole floors of department stores dedicated to golf fashion and a lot of it women's golf fashion and the price of everything in korea would be twice or three times what i'm selling here because it's just so high-end in their approach and how they kind of value it mm-hmm. um i think the great thing about golf and fashion is like you know i think uh, angus and grace has a really cool australian look and that's great you know, there's a lot of American brand. If you want an American look, you can go and do that. If you want that kind of Japanese or Korean look, you can go and buy that, you know. What's the Korean brand with the big, like it's always got big anime characters and stuff like that on the... Oh, uh, uh, Whack. Is that, yeah. Win at all costs. Win at all costs, oh, yeah. Sponsor of yeah, Minji right. Lee. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 What was the stuff Min Woo was wearing? Didn't he have he the, wear, the it's skull called, on his... Yeah, amazing cool. Thing? Yeah. Yeah. Amazing stuff. They're like... Um, Five or six hundred dollar. Yeah, they're exceptionally expensive. (laughs) I went into that store. Minwoo's had a couple of expensive ones. He had, of course, Nike, but then into Hugo Boss when he first turned pro. So he's amazing. Core would be the most expensive by far. Yeah, I'd say so. He'd he'd be exactly the right person for that too. He's a really interesting character, Minwoo. His persona is really being built at the moment, and it is going to be of extraordinary value. If he can get across the line and win a couple of big tournaments, he will be in a stratosphere of. The kid's got everything. Yeah. He's got everything. That, that, that He's a good example of that golf market variance. I mean, he's wearing a brand that you actually can't find any information about it anywhere but Korea, pretty much. And I spoke to him about it one stage, and he says, oh, yeah, it's so cool. And he started t- showing me some stuff, and he goes, you know, I don't wear the most outrageous stuff mm. they do. And he's wearing stuff that you'd, you'd probably think looks like a rash shirt for someone going swimming on a Saturday afternoon at the beach. Um, it, when I was in Asia at the end of last year covering some events, and some of the Japanese players at the Asia Pacific Am, a couple of them had Callaway deals separate and they weren't in the in the Japanese team gear. 
one of the guys had these shirts with like full on uh, cartoon designs covering the whole front of it. So you wouldn't see that number one here. You probably wouldn't be able to wear it to a lot of golf courses here. Then you go to America and there's these, North America has these huge outlet malls, mm. for lack of a better term, and an Under Armour will have one of the biggest stores there, and they're pretty much just selling polo shirts that we would consider here a golf shirt. Guys wear those all over America as their everyday shirt who don't play golf or do play golf, who probably more fit into the fat Tour de France category than into the you know other, other one. And that's like, I, I spent a lot of time over there, and there's people who just wear polo shirts. So the what you would term golf clothes is probably a massive industry of people who aren't golfers or typical golfers as well. So it's like leisure wear or something. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, yeah, effectively it falls like that, which there's still a market of that here in Australia. I mean, you wear a polo shirt every day, right? I actually don't own any T-shirts. <laughs> I only own polo shirts. And your secret it, hidden clothes that you only wear in the studio when Logan and I... Yeah, that's in, right. Indoor. The Saturday. It's Saturday, Saturday and Sunday clothes. clothes. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Didn't you say you were explaining once the collar is uh, a symbol of status or There's something There's some status. Like that? Yeah, that's, that's a history it's, it's, of it. So right. you always wear a collar like to be a big shot. No, no, no. It's because these are the shirts I own and I don't shop and go and buy other clothes. But so my, my old man's like that. He would wear a button-up shirt to work in a suit every day or a sh- polo shirt I used pretty to, much. When I was a cadet, I used to wear Suit, you know, yeah, but he would wear stuff. as he's more casual. I don't reckon he'd own too many t-shirts, but that's yeah. just what he's always done. Been around golf and stuff as well. So, you know, when I'd go play cricket or rugby on the weekend, he'd have a polo shirt on under a jumper or whatever. I'm a long way out of my depth here. Let's bring it back to something that I might understand a bit. Tell me about Dogs. this cotton, Matt. <laughs> Jimmy comes in here every week and tells us, reads off some press release about this amazing cotton that your garments are made of. This is actually quite important stuff. Tell us a little bit about. Clothing and fashion and cotton and what it does to the world and why it's important that we do some things about that and what you're doing about that. Yeah, so a big part of what uh, uh, what I try and do at Angus and Grace is try and sell something that um, has a nice backstory as well. So, uh, for example, like 2% of out of everything we sell, we donate to Wires Wildlife Rescue here uh, in New South Wales. Because- so that possum I ran over on the way here, he'll be okay? <laughs> I'm kidding. That's a terrible thing. That's, that's a bit strong. <laughs> <laughs> Look, if the possum, did, if the possum the made it, then <laughs> we might have something to do with helping rescue it, which is a great thing that we do that. Anyway, more reason to buy polo. You're wearing. <laughs> 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 um, so we do the wires thing. Uh, everything that we do is all Australian made, which I'm really, really proud of. Uh, uh, if you see something that has an Australian made logo, whether it's from me or anyone else, go and buy it and support it because it's really, really hard to Can do. Can we that trust stuff. that? Yeah, Australian you can trust that's the important, isn't it? Logo, mm. the, tri- the green triangle logo with the kangaroo in the middle, you have to have a license for that, and they vet all your suppliers and everything like that. So it's a fully, as someone that has a license, I'd go, I'd go and doing, support that for sure. Right yeah, so um, in fa- fashion's a bit mean and um, horrible in the way that it kind of, it's not great for the environment in general. So we try and really. Um, Promote products that that help that. So, our new polo shirts, which uh, Jimmy and uh, and Logan yourself, right, have been talking about these good earth cotton polo shirts. They're pretty amazing. So, we get them all um get them all woven for us down in Melbourne, and we dye them in Melbourne. I knit the collars here in Sydney, and we put the garment together here in Sydney. So that's all that's all great and Australian made. The cotton itself comes from Moree. It's uh it's the first climate positive. Uh, carbon positive fully traceable cotton program in the world which is really awesome so um, they've got some stuff in the cotton called fibrotex where you can actually like scan the cotton and then they can um, 
you can find an origin of the farm, oh, wow. where it comes from, which is There'll pretty amazing. That at some point, won't there? Where you yep. go shopping, you'll be able to just point your phone yep, and stuff. Totally, it's wow. in development right now. So they'll. Uh, there's a QR code that you'll scan, like when you come to my store, and yeah. it'll say, "We bought this from Matt. This was made by these people here. The fabric came from here. Wow. The cotton originally came from here." Which is really, uh, which is really cool. Um, and what, sorry, what is it that they're doing that up there in Moria? Are they growing the cotton in a certain way that's yeah. different to where we normally source cotton, perhaps from overseas. Yeah, uh, I mean, cotton's all, 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 like, always grown in the ground. There's nothing mm. different about that. So it's just in their farming practices. They um, they will won't use the same paddock twice in a row to let the the ground regenerate with the way that the soil um with the way that the cotton plants um take in the um take in the atmosphere they actually put carbon back into the turf as well um they never actually compact any of the turf as well so the soil remains loose during these um farming tech i'm not a farmer obviously i'm just a fashion guy but oh, there are ways. we're not going to pressure <laughs> yeah, no, you this but, you can uh, say it your line. yeah it's <laughs> really <laughs> farmers writing in and telling us you should have asked him this and that I'm but you can google good earth cotton um uh there's plenty of information out there about it as well but yeah it's the first car- carbon positively farmed fully traceable cotton program in the and world. how did you find them <clears throat> what uh, do they advertise what magazine are you reading that they've uh, got an ad in and you go oh we're going to use that you know finding fabrics is a little bit funny and you don't really <clears throat> talk about it when you're in the industry about where you find stuff but there's a really great company from Melbourne that does my weaving and they buy the good earth cotton yarn right yeah, yeah. so, so basically they buy the yarn they weave for me and then we go from there so that's pretty much what I've been saying for the last couple of weeks on the show. But in an interesting way, it made sense. And Matt sounded like he actually knew what he was talking about as opposed I, to just reading from a- I have more flavour to add to it as well, <coughs> that Ewan Porter, friend of all, his wife comes from Moray as well. So Is that right? Yeah, and it's her birthday today. Oh, six, what's it, six okay. degrees of separation? Happy, happy birthday, Emily. Yeah. Happy birthday, Emily. Yeah. I know Emily, but happy birthday to you, Emily. Yeah. Um, why is that important, Matt? What don't people know about clothing? You and I had a quick chat before these two arrived this morning. <coughs> Clothing's a- not particularly environmentally friendly industry, is it? No, it's not. I mean, like cotton uh, generally is like the worst offender because it takes a it takes up a whole bunch of uh, of water. The problem with fashion really is it's too fast. Like everything that we do, you know, we'll you know could be taking a water bottle. Jimmy has a reusable water bottle today, but you know, we all buy plenty of water bottles and throw them out and stuff like that. So fashion is no different. Uh, I think we all consume stuff way way too quickly. Um, because you can get a $5 polo doesn't mean that you should buy that $5 polo. You're, you're way better off, I think, buying quality stuff that's made in the right way and wearing it more often. So then you're kind of reducing your footprint. That's the best way to approach fashion for me. And also support like Australian made because, you know, we pay fair wages and it's a vetted process. We know what's going on here. So fashion's bad for the environment. It's bad. For, there's a bunch of human rights stuff that goes along with it as well. So where you can be ethical, I think go and go and do it and support it. Look, I'm not going to save the world by making polo shirts. <laughs> you know, like I'm under no illusion of that. But I think we're a really nice story. Um, and if you're going to buy a polo shirt, I think buy it from someone like me that makes it in a really nice way. Or you could buy it because you like the way it looks or the way it feels. But I think that's a good kind of approach. Is is there an easy way to gauge where, like just looking at the price of something, is that like a strong indicator that something's been like made in that disposable sort of fast fashion way if it's if it's like ridiculously cheap? Uh, if it's ridiculously cheap, I think as a rule of thumb, you would say yes. Um, unfortunately, stuff that's really expensive can be made yeah, in a really right. cheap way. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Just with um, a huge profit margin. Yeah, and, and you know um, – 
I think stuff that has certification behind it, brands that have more transparency, I think look for those kind of things. Fashion is such a huge industry. You can't you can't regulate everyone. Um, and people can say stuff and say, oh, we try and do this in this way or that way or whatever. I Go with stuff that has um, licenses behind it, that has qualifications behind it, if you can. All that compliance comes with cost, of course, yeah. which is why that tends to be more expensive. What's the reaction amongst your customers? Is there a market that seeks you out because they're looking for that and are happy to pay for that? This is, I think this has been a generational change. I think probably 30 years ago, people didn't think about where clothes came from. They just went and bought them because they needed them. Has that changed? Am I right about that? Are there people who want to seek out stuff that's somewhat ethical and sustainable? Yeah, for sure. I think so. Um I think a great question is like, how do I sell to someone like you, Rod, that's not maybe interested in how it looks? Is like every seven years or so. Yeah, if I, if I get you, if I get you on the right weekend, I might. If I want to have a chance to sell something to you, <laughs> um, uh, the fact that we're Australian made makes a huge difference to really big selling point for us, which is nice because. And where we get our fabrics from, like import a lot of fabrics from Japan and whatever, like we try and do really high quality stuff. If you sell off the merits of the garment rather than the price of the garment, then we're having a better conversation because, uh, you know, I'm $110 and Nike's $100 and then I go to $90 and then Adidas goes to $80. I'm going to lose that price war the whole time and to be honest no one wins because we're just making more fast fashion but you can come buy a polo shirt from me and then go well it's made in australia it's made from really nice stuff i think there's definitely a market that's that wants to that does want to engage with that kind of thing and you know what people like talking about that kind of stuff because it's a nice thing to do it's a nice thing to do and it's a good story to share I think I think there's more and more people probably just a little bit younger than myself and Matt who there's younger people than you, Jimmy. I know that's that's unbelievable. Not in, oh, I'm younger than Jimmy. Yeah, Matt's, be, Matt's younger than me. Yeah, Jimmy, I can remember when you were a young person. <laughs> anyway, there's <laughs> there is a more and more of a market in there that this sort of stuff is of a concern, and that free this information is so easy and free to find with websites and social media and whatever that you know this 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 good earth cotton has a big section of matt's website that i imagine for a young 25 year old girl looking to buy her dad a golf shirt for father's day or whatever number one they are going to buy him something that looks a bit cooler than what he probably buys himself and number two this is the sort of story that's going to interest them um and it's something that golf is doing more of in all different areas, I think, in terms of sustainability and focus on all that sort of stuff. That, Plastic bottles. At well, that exactly. That was exactly right. That yeah. Matt mentions, you know, a, a, a refillable bottle. Uh, you know, I'm I quite conscious about all this sort of stuff and do my best to try and limit that sort of thing. I go and work. Let's say I work four golf tournaments in a row. It's high as summer wherever it is. It's hot as all, and you need to drink water and whatever. Your option is just to keep grabbing plastic water bottles either out of an esky if you're on the golf course or out of a fridge. You know, there's been a few tournaments. The Open, the Open's gone. Not Scottish Open. Open. Yeah. Um, Didn't we put in Australia at a couple of the New South Wales? Was it the New South Wales Open? New I South think? Wales Open. All the was, players were given yeah, a, a refill. Uh, not this you get year. A virtual but, one though. <laughs> In the metaverse. Did you get a metaverse water bottle. <laughs> right. Okay. Is that an in-joke? I've missed something but, there, I feel like. No, but 
there's they started starting to do that, and that should be screened from the rafters by tournaments and stuff like that. It should be this, mandatory. Almost exactly should be right. government mandated. If you're running an event where there's going to be more than next yeah. number of people there, you have to do Obviously something. Obviously, the difficulties about. are of all oh, players need to get water in the remote parts of the golf course, and how do you mm. get it in there for one week of problems the are year. for solving though. But not, exactly they're not right. complaining about and saying, well, let's just stick with what we do because that works for us. They're about solving them. So Which is exactly where outcome. I think it comes back to what Matt's just spoken about that. He's trying to make something in a market that's cheaper and quicker and all that sort of stuff. And the problem of, well, I want to try and do it this way as opposed to doing it the same way as everyone else and then fighting with them on price, which is going to be a tough battle, is solving a problem. And golf can do a better job of actively solving problems rather than saying this is a problem, we're aware of it. Hmm. Uh, That's doing things a little bit different, I think, is something Matt, sort of builds his brand around um I, I we've spoken before about your creative approach and how it oh, like i think my observation of it is that you're quite opinionated with your design Come on, um, you. <laughs> but, but i think it's out of those things that the best things can come where it's like somebody's got a vision and you stick to your vision you might be getting some feedback from customers but it's up to you like to choose, like you're you're the product manager, like you're the guy saying, yeah, no, we're gonna have like a button in on the on the shirt in that spot or not, or we're gonna have our pockets a certain way, or you know, a bit because you'll think of things that a consumer won't think of, like, and it speaks to the whole experience of interacting with the brand, how you sell it, uh, that you know, most of your sales I think occur in store still where you can tell the story about the garments and uh it's all it's all part of that and all of those things seem like bad decisions in isolation like they seem like oh if you if you got rid of the you've been told in the past get rid of the clumsy angus and grace part of the name of the thing then the the name's punchier but you know it's like no no i'm going to stick with the name (laughs) and and like you've been told well why don't you sell in these outlets and you're like no no this is how i sell stuff yeah i think like the approach for me always comes from like it's a lot of like troubleshooting problems that like i've had before it's like uh so a lot of what we do it's very old school is we like do a lot of knitting not many golf brands knit anymore but we you know we use these great old knitting machines from the 80s and we knit a lot of the polos like the one I've got on right now. And the great thing about it is like I can knit like a jumper band into the bottom of the polo shirt. So when you wear it untucked, it looks really neat. So like, you know, the big problem with golf shirts at golf clubs is tucky shirting because it looks, it's tucky shirting because it looks messy. So no consumer would ever think to suggest that, right? Like no. make a shirt with a jumper yeah, yeah I mean, bottom, you like, and I have been playing golf our whole life. I wouldn't have ever thought yeah. of that. Yeah, <laughs> but right. it makes perfect sense, right? And then, like, uh, we do these big uh, inverted box pleat back pockets on our shorts. I didn't understand any of those words. I'm familiar with all of those yeah. words, but so the way I'll, you put I'll, them together <laughs> made no sense to me. But the great thing about them is uh, when you put things in the pockets, they have all the – because there's a box pleat in the back of them. Basically, a pleat gives you kind of more storage. Is when you put stuff in the back of it, the pocket expands. So, oh, is this what you were talking about, like a cargo short? Yeah, they're like the a back? cargo pocket. Yeah. yeah. It's, but, it's but simple the, for me, Matt. Cargo shorts, that makes yeah. sense, but they're put on it the on the back, back instead of the, the, uh, the, the They're on the, the back, yeah. yeah. So it's all totally above dress regulations and stuff like that. But, you know, the thing about especially men's clothing is it's all re- it's all rooted in utility. We're re- all mm. really good at wearing uniforms, mm. you know. So if you can make stuff that's practical and looks good, 
then I can sell it to you kind of like two ways. You know what I mean? You're going to be comfortable in this. It solves a problem of I hate when, you know, when my shirt's untucked, it looks weird. And then when I'm not in the golf course, if I don't have my shirt tucked, if I have my shirt tucked in, I'm going to look even weirder. So how do I wear an untucked shirt and it looks neat? Well, this is how we do it, you know. Let's keep that microphone nice and close to you, too. There's, you get you all over the place. You're as bad as clothes. <laughs> Speaking of, there's <laughs> one of the yeah. things that Matt does is a rain jacket that's a pullover rain jacket, which you really don't see from... Like a up, jumper, you mean, rather yeah, than a zip-up thing. Yeah, pullover. Yeah. Pull it over your head. You don't jack, do it up and do that. So... You don't see that from other golf brands anymore in a rain jacket. You used to see those sort of things like that once upon a time. But I remember I've got one and Matt explaining where, where the seams are or lack of seams are so that you can still swing it like all the other brands will tell you about their rain gear that you swing with freedom and all this sort of stuff. And it goes over the top and it doesn't restrict you in any way that it just becomes – but it looks a lot better than a just regulation rain jacket. Mm which I've always had as quite a handy thing for not golf. You know, if I'm going for a walk or I'm doing whatever, I want to stay dry, so I grab that. I don't want to walk down where I live in the middle of the city in Sydney where there's no room looking to carry like an umbrella. Looking like a golfer, God forbid. Well, looking like a golfer, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, Clates went into the shop during a tournament up in Sydney and came into the golf club, saw me and yelled across the room about how good it was that we had these matching jackets and how, you know, that idea is. That's a completely different outside of golf thing. I think like what you're talking about, Logue, with the, the band around the bottom of the shirt is this idea of, well, no, we can do it. We can make it functional, but make it look good as well, um, which I think is hopefully the direction the whole industry is going. It's not just Matt, but it's it's a real positive for golf to look at it, uh, look at things it's that slow, way. But I think you're right. You can see that in lots of ways that golf is sort of moving in different directions. Are you a disruptor, Matt? Is that how you consider yourself? I don't know if I'm aggressive enough to say I'm a disruptor. But I think Ooh, I've even been- worse, you're a white anter. You're doing it quietly. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe I am a white answer. <laughs> no, I'm only kidding. Do you um, know what I'm saying, though, don't you? Yeah, look, I'm, uh, I'm under – yeah, we're, we're a totally different golf brand. I think our look is completely our own, um, which I'm really proud of because I think a lot of brands come out now and they go, well, we've started a golf brand and we're making T-shirts and here's a hoodie with our logo on it. How bland can not, we be to well, fit in with vanilla like, golf? For me, it's not really designing, whereas no. like you can come into my store – we can go on the website. Anything you buy from me, like you could call me and I could literally explain to you how I made everything. And it's a decision ma- that I've made based around practicality or an aesthetic. I-, I think more brands should try and have their own look. There's so many brands, especially in the US, that just like I got this great polo shirt from so and so, and it's like, well, that could be five different brands. They all make that same shirt. It's kind of boring. They differentiate themselves on their logo and the marketing around how yeah. they sell the shirt, but the actual product itself is completely undifferentiated. Yeah, like our look is different, and I, I think for me, I think the looks really Australian in a in a in a cool way. Um, we have such a wealth of like great golf courses and the golf culture here is so amazing in Australia, but we just buy polo shirts from the US or Asia or the UK. It's like, why don't we have an Australian brand? That was always my thing. It's like, well, it comes down to this notion about Marcus, doesn't it? Yeah. Told the story. Are Raul Sports still not making golf shirts? It was an Australian brand, was it? Were they Australian, Ralph Sport? Ralph Sport was Australian, wasn't it? What was Ellen? used to be over in Alexandria. Um, They might still be going. Sport Sport, Leisure. Sport Leisure, yeah. Yeah, 25 years of business. Yeah. 
year and a half, two years ago? That'd be the only ones I could name off the top of my head that it would say Australia. But mm. the business model, though, is what dictates that, though, isn't it, Matt? And it's the same with all products. Yeah. Mm. Australia is a tiny market in terms of global things, tiny. I remember I used to sell tyres at my dad's yeah. workshop, Michelin tyres, and there was a period where you couldn't get this certain tyre for four-wheel drives because the Iraq war was on. And there was oh, tyres. Tyres, yeah. I thought you were saying tyres. No, 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 tyres for cars. Anyway, I wonder what a Michelin tire would be. No. Like, I wonder what, what, what a seven, would look like. Sevenfold tire. I've got a golf in <laughs> Michelin tire. But I have more. Anyway, the I'd, point I'd being, like to see him try and tie a tie with those thumbs. Yeah, it's not good. <laughs> it's not an attractive knot when it's finished. It's sort of a half Windsor with a with a thumbprint in it. Anyway, the point being, I was talking to one of the reps from Michelin who were complaining about couldn't get these tires, and he said, "Listen, there are three cities in Brazil that are bigger markets than all of Australia." So if your business model is volume, which most businesses are, including fashion, you're not going to get a lot of innovation in Australia or a lot of options, are you? Because it's not a market that people are going to be – you will in America where people will be – there's a bigger market to try to sell to. And that's one of the problems we have here with everything to do with product is the size of the market down here. What we think is big is tiny. There'd be – I mean, California is what, the sixth biggest economy in the world? Mm. One state in America. We, you can't compete if the, if, if the game is volume. But is it changing, I guess, is there, there's always been pockets of, which I think is what you're in, it's a pocket of not relying on volume, but on something different to sell. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we are, uh, we are obviously not in the volume game, which is great. You know, like my little brand is just me and I have a couple of part-time employees. I have two But if you're successful, won't that be the pressure? Isn't this what the next step becomes? You're in business and so you've started this small business. The idea is for it to grow, is it not? Yeah, for sure. But, you know, I don't have to have 100 staff to get 100 times bigger. That's not really, you know, we have our manufacturing set up the way it is. We sell online right now. We sell in our store. We have a wholesaler in Melbourne at Mulligan's Club Makers who do amazing refurbished golf clubs. And then we sell at a Playfair in Randwick, which is a great fun place to go play simulator golf inside. Free ad read, free ad read, free ad read. <laughs> There's two invoices There's we're going to have to send, yeah. <laughs> oh, let me give you a third. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, and then we're going to start doing a little bit of wholesale stuff to clubs as well. I mean, that was actually the original intention of the brand. Um, so, you know, look, I can be a whole bunch of different places at once, and that's that's kind of great. I don't need to build out, build out, build out. The problem with big You don't fat- want to be Under Armour? No. Or Nike? No, that's okay. I don't There's need to There's nothing wrong. I'm just uh, – because yeah. that – that's inevitably where these things sort of tend to end up is that whether you like it or not, that's the way businesses grow, isn't it? That's where the, you're going to have to drive it a certain way for it to not become that if it's going to be that successful. Yeah, and that's okay. I mean, that's a problem. That would be a great problem to mm. face in the future, but for right now, I'm not too sure. But um, yeah, we're kind of, we can be small and nimble and within Australia, like there's plenty of market within Australia. If I could sell a really good pol- uh, polo shirt at, you know. Mangrove ten Mountain. golf clubs in Australia, and they sell ten polo shirts a year. Then, but you know, like we can, we can scale it, make this business bigger, quicker. It's not really too much of a thing. We don't need to be, we don't need to be Nike to make money. I'd much rather do it in a smaller, um, more specific way. It makes the brand more um, desirable as well, right? And Phil Knight's my- never going to come into the studio here, so you're one up on him in terms he of- He hates Sydney, podcast. doesn't he? No, I'm oh, does he? I've made that up. That's unsubstantiated. <laughs> <laughs> the- I don't think he listens. So it's okay. I, 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 think, I think golf is definitely going that away from that mass-produced stuff. Mm-hmm. Maybe not so much in America, which is its own beast of a thing. We all know that. But if you look at equipment, so my background in golf being- you know, golf clubs, mass-produced golf clubs became the thing for quite a period there where 
you just kind of bought what was on special. You know, I remember selling tailor-made R7 irons when they when they came out. I sold hundreds and hundreds of sets of that iron to all sorts of level of golfers because it was the right price and you could custom fit it and you could do this, you could do that. Now there is every golfer looking at all the vast you know, options in an iron to find the one that they like the most and then to customize it further to them that the market has shifted hugely. So a brand like Nike that was in golf equipment its approach to everything is to make heaps of it. And it failed. And, and it fails. One of the biggest stories in golf that we're going to talk about. Despite the you take Tiger Woods, mm. the most marketable athlete arguably of all, all time, time. And Rory. And Rory and all these people and you say, here is what Tiger Woods plays. Mm. You can buy it. Oh, but there's hundreds of thousands of sets of them. Mm. It takes away that appeal in golf. Uh, you know, just overnight. Adam Scott and Miura have released an Adam Scott blade Mm. iron. What a fit that is. That's just perfect. But Adam's got a very specific niche that he likes with his – I've spoken to Adam about golf equipment for hours on end. He's a nerd, isn't he? Oh, massive. Complete nerd. His old man was a club builder. He's a watch guy too. He's a watch guy too. Perfect. And his irons, he likes offset. Like, no one likes offset in a blade. So that's why he was always playing older Titleist models. And then that's how this thing came to be about, because Titleist would make him a new model, but they had to kind of make him his own. And Titleist isn't quite in that – they are in that niche game for tour players, but an opportunity extends to somewhere else. And they think it's so valuable they've taken it to market. Muir is not going to sell 100,000 sets of Adam Scott blades. They don't want to. They won't make that. No, that's right. They They don't don't want to. They don't have many – Skews either. I think there's like this thing. I've, it's always stuck with me that um, Steve Jobs said about Apple when he's competing against um, Hewlett Packard or whoever. He's like, you could fit every Apple product we've ever made on this coffee table that's in front of us. Mm. Like the there's they would all fit here. Like mm-hmm. and that's like all the variations too. Like the the 16-inch laptop and the 13 and the 11-inch. 16-inch laptop. Those were the days, weren't they? <laughs> that big dinner tray like BJ's got. The um, And it just simplifies the choice for the consumer. Mm. But there's still plenty of personalization inside that choice. But the basic choice when you walk into an Apple store is it's like it's that product or that product or that product. Like, yeah. And it leads to more sales, actually. Yeah. Um, whereas these, some of these mass market brands are just flooding the market with every single option and and compelled to release a different skew every month or every year um, in every little every little category, and it just becomes so confusing what they've got. The the golf market, like I say, is going so much more that way. I mean, I remember selling at one stage one one of the biggest golf companies had five different irons all with the same model name but different variations of it how frustrating is that i find that so that's really as a retailer that's so difficult Mm, as a customer that's so difficult to navigate your way around and it's done with intention that the player on tour has that branded stuff on his hat so you go i want a set of these irons and that's what you end up but it became an issue for the wholesalers too because they had to predict in australia particularly to bring it back to this local market which one of those five five irons was going to be the most successful. And a couple of them got caught out buying in one model that tanked. And they're sitting there with a couple of hundred sets of this iron in in a warehouse in Melbourne going, well, what do we do now? Yeah. Compare that to like Epon 
yeah. who have like Epon Personals or something, yeah. and then like a few years later, they'll release Epon Personals too. Yeah, and so and the big just- and the big brands have followed that trend, and you watch brands like to your point, Rod probably get ahead of themselves with, well, hang on, we've got a bit more popularity here. Let's add a couple more. And you see it and go, that's not going to last. Callaway had an ex-forged iron that was so popular with two of players in a retail where they would normally fall into line of the two-year product life cycle. They just went, we're not going to replace it. It's going that well. It's still there. So we're going to keep it. And it's going to sit there until we can't make it anymore. You know, the materials aren't available. And that, that's a genuine thing that happens with golf clubs that, you know, people don't understand. But they went, okay, we've got to come up with something new. And they spoke about it in the release of the new model. That, hey, we've had this thing that's been an absolute bedrock of our of this category. We now think we have finally improved it, um, which I think speaks to that golf is finding its niches of Equipment, apparel, footwear. You know, Clates, again, talks about not golf footwear, but why wouldn't you buy a more expensive pair of shoes that's going to last you five years than buying five pairs that last you one year? Usually because they don't come in my size, but that's a whole different point. Yeah, well, that's a you. <laughs> Speaking of Clates, so uh, we talked about like Min Woo is a representative for this Korean, extremely expensive Korean brand. But is there a tour pro like obviously Mike, you've got Mike Clayton in Angus and Grace golfing gear? Is there any tour pro who you would think oh that that would work well on tour like having Ooh, or is yeah, it is it a brand that actually translates to TV? Who are we pigeonholing like, here today? Come on, yeah, I know, I get asked <laughs> that all the time actually. Um, probably not to be honest. I think Clates is our like he's our guy. Uh-huh. <laughs> you might as well just go tall with dark, the pod, tall, dark with the and handsome. Yeah. He's quite charismatic. No, but like, I think that's the. I think Clates is the guy because he's the one that we can all be, and he's the one that we want to relate to and stuff like that as well. Like you know, Minwoo Lee is awesome and super cool and really marketable, but my client wants to listen to Clates and is engaged in talking about what kind of like weird vintage golf clubs I sell in the store or that kind of thing. I I, I think uh, professional golfers probably think a bit too highly of how many polo shirts they can sell for a brand on the whole, I would say, where it's like, I, I would rather you just come in and look at my stuff and and value it for what it is rather than like trying to get it on some you know, young, up-and-coming tour pro. That's it. It would be good to get Rory out of those shocking clothes that he's been wearing. Like, I can tell you, I've been trying to find some photos of Rory for something this last week, and he has been dressed horribly this year. The old Oakley days are pretty pretty wild. Yeah. Well, they sometimes do dress him quite well, Rory, but this- Nike's always hitting me, so they were the same with Tiger. Yeah, that's right. put him in stuff sometimes, you'd be like, what are you doing? I, I'm, yeah, fasc- I'm kind of fascinated by the sponsorship concept of- clothing with tour pros and what the effect of it is in terms of sales and stuff. I mean... The clothing, it's interesting. Yeah, Minwoo Lee, I'm sure, probably does sell amazing clothing products. Tiger used to sell for, enormous amounts. Absolutely. But he's, I bought, he's an I bought Nike pants when I was 14 years of age because I wanted to be like Tiger and had a red shirt and all that. But I'm sure Minwoo moves the needle for that stuff in Korea. Like, uh, that's a market that, like Matt mentioned, is completely different anywhere else in the world. So, understanding that's impossible. But... Um, I think Adam Scott, again, and Uniqlo makes perfect sense. Yeah, absolutely. He's number one. He's a great clothes horse who, mm-hmm. what did you call him once, Logue? As hot as breakfast? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and he he wears clothes well, yeah. but he wears 
it, you know, clothes that are very attainable to every person because it's sold by Uniqlo. Animal look work. Yeah, he does, mm. and so and you can walk into a Uniqlo store and buy something similar to what Adam wears, whether it's the same stuff or not. But it looks a bit different too because there's no other pros wearing that gear. But like, yeah. but I can't imagine that Victor Hovland's frankly quite awful scripting of mm-hmm. Jake Lindeberg clothing with really colours yeah. where he looks like a he's stepped off the set of, you know, Goodfellas or the Sopranos in like a <laughs> turned into a gossip show. This is fantastic. But uh, I can't I can't imagine that that sells many clothes for a really high end fashion brand that had a huge presence on tour at one stage. Aaron Badley wore mm-hmm. Jake Lindeberg and a bunch of other guys. Johan Edberg. Yeah, a lot yeah. of European guys wore that, <laughs> yeah. didn't they? Yeah. yeah. What next? We're going to have a blog with, you know, 50 pros who've got fat. Click here. I tell you. You won't believe number 12. I, I tell you what, would I, I'd love. Well, we talked about this in our other podcast. Um, <laughs> we talked about this in our other podcast, but. The moment Anna Davis came on screen at yeah. the Anwar last year, and she's wearing that. Ooh, uh, did we say what? Anwar? Is that that? Oh, have you just started something? No, no way. A N W A. Yeah, I'm not sure I'm on board with that. I thought it was Anwar. Oh, I've definitely heard Anwar. I read it Anwar. Did we even say Anwar yesterday? No, I said Augusta National Women's Amateur. Okay, I'm not sure I'm on board with Anwar. No, I don't think I like. It's a bit too close to Fatwa. That's not my point. Yeah, but it's the point I'm picking up on. Um. She she had the bucket hat. She had that sort of like a wind cheater open, thing, open with, full zip. Yeah. yeah, but then she'd close it when she had to take a swing yeah, and stuff. Yeah, and yeah. like the whole thing was like was really show, interesting, it? and it wasn't any sort of like it was. They were clearly street clothes, and it was her own thing, and like it was a nice taper on a on a pants that she was wearing and everything. And I feel like somebody just in a PJ tour event coming out with something like that. I mean, they do it a little bit at the start of the year, I guess, in in Hawaii, but it always it's a little bit hit and miss, and you can tell there's there's a weird sort of marketing angle to what yeah. they're doing. But yeah, I don't. know. I can't imagine all the pros of that. It's really they, cut through having somebody having something different. You'd have a number of pros just wear whatever they're sent that week. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. You know, others would want to be involved in what they're free clothes. Doing. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Like, unbelievable. They get sent the scripting. They literally get sent. You wear this shirt, this pants, these this hat. On this day, what a way to live! Eh? And, All the money and no fun. And and like they just go oh, okay, and they, they do. and they wouldn't he's, make he's that decision and go, go. This doesn't oh, okay. go with that or whatever. Yeah. But I'm sure there's others who are quite yeah. outspoken about what they were. Probably Victor Hovland, based by how he looks. I think the I'm hard really thing with the scripting him. is like it's someone's job at yeah. insert big yeah. company here. Where they're like we've got to like prove our worth as a designer for this brand, whatever else. So they dress everyone up like superheroes. Which is totally fine if they're trying to sell to your son, Louis, who's five and into superheroes. But we don't need to have match, 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 match. I think the thing that was with Anna Davis that people really related to is the nonchalance. It's how people actually like wear clothing. <laughs> you see it on Instagram all the time. People put up a photo. It's Ben Hogan and Arnold Palmer standing mm-hmm. on the tee, having a cigarette. Yeah. Don't, they look, don't they look so cool? What are they wearing? A cotton polo shirt, white. Yeah. With like Michelin a, tie, mi, mi, yeah. Michelin <laughs> tie, yeah, alpaca wool uh, cardigan. Oh yeah, yeah, but they're like just plain. But it's a pretty plain a cardi- cardigan. It's a pretty yeah, plain yeah. cardigan. They're not wearing a hat, mm-hmm. and they're just wearing like a plain pair of slacks. And that's what we try and make is like simple clothing where it's like logo, logo, logo on the hat, and then it's full superhero getup where we've got. Remember the old Rory Nike days where he's like, we've got blue sleeves on the shirt, right? So that matches the belt, which matches the vapor driver or whatever. It's like <laughs> the reason why people don't like it is because it's so obviously done up. I think really good dressing is 
being comfortable in your clothing and having that kind of nonchalance. It's what's relatable about Scott, right? Yeah. Like, people going nuts he, about he's wearing all tan. He's wearing a beige pair of pants. How many? Yeah. But, but he's happy like, with it. Yeah, but, like, he's how simple is that? Yeah. Like, how refreshing is it to see someone not in, like, those, like, jogger, skinny, like, Lululemon-looking leggings now? It's like, they're so not relatable. Like, I don't want to wear them. They look uncomfortable. Scott looks comfortable. Mm. Mm. I want to do that. Except until he starts jogging. Yeah. Like, oh, he's, that was horrendous, yeah. that video we saw of him running that time. That oh, was, did you did you see that? Yeah, Jason Day, Adam Scott, Abraham Anson, and Jonathan Vegas. He was yeah. he was mincing. <laughs> Jonathan. <laughs> nice. <laughs> it's terrible. Like Adrian Moron. PGA? Uh, it Simon's was at the Zurich Classic when they were trying to get in before the siren went. And it's four of the most unla- unathletic moves of all time because Jason Day at the time's back could not handle. <laughs> he could barely walk. He could run. barely walk. Yeah. Abraham Answer looked like he was like a little toy on batteries. Was, he was, was pow- powering everything so fast and it was not moving anywhere. And Jonathan Vegas, like, is just a lumbering huge. You'd assume lumber. him to just take huge strides. It wouldn't look great, but he'd, be, he'd yeah. move. Yeah. He'd move kind of like a heavy like gazelle. To, I imagine he gained speed as time would, went on. Yeah. I wouldn't want to be standing in front of him as he picked up like Simple 40 physics yards. Just has, just, and, yeah. and slow to stop. <laughs> yeah. He's not pulling oh, yeah. up in a hurry. No, no, no. He needs that like extra area after the finish line. Beyond the checkered flag. Matt, are you a golf company or a clothing company? Uh, we're a clothing company that makes golf clothing. Oh, no, we're a clothing company. Uh, we're a clothing company first and foremost. I think the background is fashion, and then we yeah. apply it to golf rather than golf. Then golf, and then let's try and make yeah. something. You mentioned you sell old golf clubs in the shop. What's that about? Because you're a golf nerd at heart, are you not? Uh, yeah, I kind of always been fascinated by like finding things rather than just spending a lot of money on them. I th- I find that kind of adventure the fun part. So. Um, uh, I play in a retro gala day with two people sitting at this desk and my nemesis, Ewan Porter. <laughs> um, but we'll t- I-, I think talking about Ewan's another podcast, yeah, but yeah, I prefer sure. not to do that now. We've had him in the studio. We should have a whole episode without him in the studio. <laughs> um, yes, yeah, so we sell a whole bunch of vintage golf clubs. Uh, we get a lot through Old Salty Golf on Instagram if you want to follow them. They're pretty cool. Fabulous. And also the guys at Mulligan's Club Makers read them. Is that Twisted? Uh, uh, or twirled clubs or something? Is that twirled the same clubs not, thing? Uh, not related. Same idea. Oh, related. But okay. yeah, you know, like uh, we've got some great Spalding bird on ball blades in there right now. There's some old persimmon. We're a bit low on putters right now, but we are getting a big restock. So like, you know, like a f- original ping answers and that kind of stuff. I think they're so great for people to buy and get involved with. The putters go really well for us. Um, we sell some new clubs as well. We sell Yururi from Japan. But um I think the retro clubs, especially the old... What's the Mura's you've got? I've got Mura 501s myself. Oh, no, I've got Mizu- my retro blades. Yes. Oh, I've got some uh, Mizuno finalist blades. Oh, that's they're, uh, Mizuno's. Yeah. They would be 50 years old probably. I got oh, them redone. They're beautiful. Yeah, they're really cool. There's also a McGregor response putter, the yeah. oversized model made famous by Jack Nicklaus yeah. at yeah, the 86 yeah, Masters in sure. there. I, and I think that kind of stuff's really... Uh, it's so such a good talking point for golf. You know, if you go and buy the new driver, whatever, whatever brand, it's like so uninteresting or it'll just be usurped in six months. But like, you know, I game a, both of my putters that I game are retro putters and you have conversations with people and you find out about the history of them as well. It's like, it's, it, I find the old equipment so much more engaging to talk about than the new stuff now. 
Well, no question, because the new stuff is designed to, A, turn over a lot because mm. it's a business. And yeah. But it was, it's not made by hand. You go back to your persimmon woods and uh, somebody's made those things. And yep. golfers would spend years trying to find a wood that worked for mm, them. Absolutely. And when they found it, I mean, Nicholas used the same driver from the 1940s, I think, for the bulk of his he used career. used the same three-wood, I think. He's Norman had a three-wood in his bag. Even in 1999, when Aaron Baddeley won at Royal Sydney, Norman was still carrying a persimmon three-wood that he'd had in the bag for something like 25 years. He had an amazing shot into the 16th with it as late as 1999. There's something about that. We've given up some of that, haven't we, for this better-performing sort of golf equipment. And I wonder whether there's – are you seeing a lot of people who are interested in retro? It feels to me like it's a movement that's growing. And what does that tell us? It's growing. It's pretty niche. I I think it probably aligns well with my brand where I try and make stuff in a pretty uh, classic way, like with the knitting and all that kind of stuff. I think the retro is great. I have a whole bunch of friends just getting into golf now, and it's like, should I go and get fit for clubs? I want to go get some clubs. I spent three grand getting fit for this, that, and the other. And they've got these drivers now that, you know, for people learning golf, it's kind of hard to learn with it because you don't learn to hit the sweet spot. It's just like swinging this big shovel. And I'll go and play with them at, like, you know, I'm going to play at Wallara or Bondi or something like that, you know, and we'll stand up on that tee on the par four at Bondi. Yeah. And it's like, hit your driver and then now hit my, like, Persimmon Honma driver. And it's like so much more fun to hit mine. And they, like, you know, audibly giggling. Um, I think people should do it more, especially like we do these retro gala days, which are just so fun. And the idea is we go play on public golf courses. They're all $20 green fees. They're not very long golf courses. They're all quite short. With the modern stuff, you kind of, your game's too big for the golf course in a weird way. But with this old stuff, it's just so much more fun because you have to hit the center of the club face to hit good shots. And hitting bad shots is kind of half the fun. Yeah. You know? Hmm. Interesting. Did you tell me you're not a persimmon guy? You're an early metalwood guy? I'm an early metalwood guy. Jimmy could attest to that. <laughs> That's the worst era of woods, is it not, Jimmy? The, oh, they're the, the early hardest metalwood, to hit. They were terrible. terrible. They were awful. awful I remember playing with them as a kid. They were absolutely horrific. And it was not even like you could find a good one. They were pretty no, much all bad. There's exactly. the Jim Dent. Uh, no, that's way after early metal. Oh, is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Big I'm talking, was the start that's the, that's, that's the It starts to turn yeah. away. But like Pittsburgh Persimmon from TaylorMade and, um, you know, that sort of era where it, it still maintained the shape of Persimmon, no. but in steel, not in Just titanium. Metal. They were truly awful things. And that's why the guys on tour remained with Persimmon because mm. – these things were terrible. They had hot spots in the faces. They couldn't work out where to put the center of gravity because they didn't really know what they were doing. So they came out and they spun like crazy or they didn't spin and they were awful. Terrible. Yeah, Terrible. awful, awful stuff. But Matt I was is say, a, But you chose to marry one, Matt, so that's fine. Nothing wrong with <laughs> Matt, Matt is a master with the ones he has in the bag. So I that that may be the case for most people, but it's just because, yeah, yeah but that's but Matt doesn't hit persimmon very well. Which is part of the enjoyment of going through that stuff is yep. you find, you know, I, I I started my golf playing Persimmon Woods, um, hand-me-down ones. And you claim to be young. Hand-me-down young. Everyone else was using metal, but I was traditionalist. But uh, I never hit them that well. I was never a good driver of the golf ball with old gear, and I'm still not. I still don't hit because you're already driver. worried about what's going to happen when you get to the green. You get kind of a low left thing going. Yeah, that's right. I've never been able to. I've never been able to hit them, but I can hit. I can hit blade long irons. So you know, I I'll, when we go and play those gala days, I hit one iron with those tour edition blades off pretty much every tee. 
that's the fun part of it, mm. is I love doing that. I, I, I struggle to get enjoyment out of playing golf with modern gear. It's just not, it doesn't interest me. I've done so much of it. But going and doing this, and like Matt says, hitting bad shots and then getting to hit the recovery shots with those and old balls that you and Porter has some mysterious source of, you know, it's, that's There's an Aladdin's one. cave somewhere in the world because people keep bobbing up with dozens of the old Max Flies and yeah. Titleists and there's some, some amazing there's, there's nothing. Balls. There's nothing like getting to the first tee and indi- and unwrapping an, an individually wrapped, wrapped gold yeah. ball. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. that, that's Sounds just awesome. that so cool. Yeah. Which Ross Baker is, I don't know if you saw, but Ross Baker is about to open, open a shop, shop in Melbourne. Yeah. Again, a, probably a bit older vintage of golf equipment more, but he does persimmon and stuff like that. I think which will be folds of re-released cool. a ball with, with the individual wrapping now. Yeah. I have to look that up. You better look that up because if and we'll have to have that in the show notes. Uh, last thing, I was just thinking while you were talking there, Matt, you know, going and spending 3000 bucks on sort of new golf gear, how much fun could you have with $3,000 in the retro world? How I many sets could you buy and, and, and oh. try for three grand? Yeah, a lot. It would be a real journey, wouldn't it? I think the real hard thing in Australia is like how small the market is here. But man, if you're in the US where you could go somewhere, you know, um, you don't need three. I, I have it a lot with my friends trying to get into golf and I don't push them all the way into retro stuff, but it's like, you could really put a good bag together for a thousand dollars. I mean, unfortunately our, um, like the Jerry's of the world at Balmain golf are kind of disappearing a little bit, <laughs> but like, I've taken my friends into Balmain Golf when it was up and running, and it was like, cool, let's get you started. Yeah. Let's find you a set that of was, irons. That was a great box. way to get into oh, golf, it's isn't so it? It's so much like, fun, and they don't feel like they've spent way too much money. Right. If you don't and like it, and they sit in the corner for it, it doesn't matter. It's yeah. not what you think you need, but it's what you need. Yeah. It's yeah. just clubs that are just gonna, that, you're going to be able to swing them, and when you're ready to go and was, get your first set of big Callaway big boy things or something like that, yeah. then you can do that. But you're yeah. Honestly, going to be a few years away from doing that as a yeah. as yeah. a new golfer. That was so you might I as mean, well use some. I, I worked for big what you call big box golf stores when I when I left school and whatever, and they've helped the market in Australia become so much more affordable compared to what it was, where we had this out of whack with the rest of the world golf market. But oh, those, I remember drivers in the mid nineties being eight and nine hundred dollars. Yeah, exactly. More, t- you know, twelve hundred dollars. Yeah. And I'm still looking for a Jay's professional weapon. If anyone has one, <laughs> can you please, absolutely. Can you please uh, DM me? Greg Norman, I think, has a few in his garage. But uh, that shop style of what, uh, rest in peace, Jerry Lay had at Balmain Golf was so much fun, and it was because it was like mm. what old golf shops were. Yeah. Jerry knew that place was a pigsty of golf equipment. Like, like an old hardware shop. There was just stuff everywhere. He never had persimmon. He did have was, a few things because he had some of my old stuff in the front that he it would wasn't sell. A persimmon guy, he wasn't that wasn't Jerry's thing, but no. that's what his error of golf was. But he was like an old golf shop where he knew where everything was and what he had and what he'd paid for it. Yeah. And if you and I would take people in there or send people in there and also just go and hang out with Jerry on a Saturday and have a coffee and chat and watch someone come in and they could come in and say I'm just getting started. I want to spend $800. And they walk out with a set of golf clubs that is going to get them started. Oh, and like you say, Rod, some, if they know, never MP32 play again, they're not going to. <laughs> but they'd have this amazing story of this crazy Irishman telling them all sorts of stories while he does it. And it was amazing. You know, I remember going into what was Big John's at Chatswood when I was mm-hmm. a kid and putting together a set of irons by buying each one individually. individually. And you, I would save up my money, and yeah. then I would go and buy a four iron, and I would go and buy that, and whatever. That sort of experience first, is, come next. yeah, that sort of experience doesn't exist anymore. But that was that was special part of golf that, you know, the, those shops are unfortunately going. But you know, that 
that retro sort of movement keeps that little bit of that alive where you just mm. buy a club here and there and you put it together. And the response is, like, I went to play a pro-am at a PGA Tour of Australasia event and I just grabbed some clubs to go and I grabbed the modern bag by chance out of the apartment and a bunch of people were disappointed that I didn't show up with the retro clubs. <laughs> that they've seen me play these Gardes. Kim Felton was shattered I didn't bring tour editions. Well- it's quite remarkable. Larry Canning gave me a couple of clubs at the New South Wales Open a couple of years ago. They were just sitting on the desk next to us in the clubhouse there. And the number of people who went past and stopped and, oh, I remember these, and everyone wanted to pick that. You could have lined up every late latest model driver of every major company. Nobody would have batted an eyelid as they walked past. That's not a completely fair comparison, but there's something about people who played with that gear, remembering that gear, and going back to it. So I wonder what role – what's your name? Jerry at Balmain Golf? I don't think I ever went there. I drove past it a couple of times. He wasn't in that for the good of golf. He was in that just for business, really. I bet you everybody who went in there and sort of got 800 bucks to spend walked out having spent 800 bucks. Mm-hmm. Nobody oh, yeah. walked out having spent 600. He, he was- I'm not, but just, that's an interesting idea what role that plays in it. Here we are thinking about the good of golf and all. The he's economics of it worked as yeah, well. Yeah, he's driving yeah. business Absolutely. and it works. It, it, There's got to be yeah, an incentive. Jerry was something. in it to make a crust, yeah. of course, but it, he had golf at his core too because he was someone who loved golf. He actually worked in fashion back in the UK in a brief period of his life, not that you could tell when he was watching the races on a Saturday in Balmain, but he did have some good for golf in his cause too. He gave, I wasn't saying he wasn't, but, but not he the gave, driver of what he was doing. But there, I think so. that t- taps into golf as well yeah. that, and the old model of pro shops too. Jerry gave Kelsey Bennett her first set of good golf clubs. Oh, wow. Wow. Through a connection of a friend of a friend who's – she was their daughter down in Mollymook and he used to go down the trip and he took down, I remember when it happened, he told me about it. Kels was about 12 years old or younger and he took down a set of ping secondhand stuff that he had to give to this girl and he told me, well, apparently you should look out for this name. And I mentioned it to Kelsey six months ago and she was, we were talking about Frages, but that taps into that golf thing of what pro shops used to be. The golf pro, the head pro who owned the pro shop was there to make money. And some of them were exceptionally good at it. Yeah. But, but they had golf, golf and it was exactly good for golf. It was yeah. good for golf. Correct. Yeah. Interesting stuff. We really wandered into some very uh, unusual places. Well, Matt, it's been good of you to come along. We've enjoyed having the chat today. Where is the shop and how can people find you if they're interested and they're not yet aware of Angus and Grace Go Golfing? This is kind of different. Are you in Paddington? A golf shop in Paddington? Yeah, right? yeah, we're in Paddington. So that was kind of by design. You know, we're on William Street in Paddington, 39 William Street. So we're uh, like three doors up from the London Hotel, if you know Paddington. If you go to the footy or whatever, you'll you'll walk past us. Um, and then we're online, angusandgracegogolfing.com. Um, and then we're at Playfair in Ramwick. Go and have a beer and play some simulator golf and buy a hat there. And then we're in Mulligan's Club Makers. Uh, 1210 High Street Armadale in Melbourne. Go and buy an old restored Scotty or give in your old one that needs a bit of love. Um, so we're a few different places, yeah. But the ma- the main retail store is in Paddington, yeah. And if there was anybody out there who has some sort of a shop that wants to stock your gear, is that something you're open to talking about? They just get in touch with you? How do you go about that? Yep, just get in touch with us uh, through the website or through Instagram. It's great. We are doing a bit of wholesale stuff. There's some exciting things coming up, I hope. Nothing I can really talk about just now. How's Ooh, that? Nasty. Good mystery, huh? Mm-hmm. Well, you're, you're setting yourself up for a return <laughs> visit, aren't you? That's what you've done there. Like, I'll be back to explain this when I can. I can't talk about it now. Yeah. We're going to do ties or tires now that you're <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> ties and go, go tires. driving. Yeah. Go driving. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Fantastic. It's been good of you to come in today, mate. We really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Jimmy, good to have you aboard. I look forward to Matt Kuchar, Matt Fitzpatrick, or Matt every next week. Nice work. Well Thank done. You. Thank you. Yeah, good work. Logue.
Uh, what about Matthias Gromberg? Maybe? No, you won't truly. Yeah. Off I'll, I'll take Hideki Matsuyama. Okay. Okay, okay I'll see what you did there. All right. Can you say goodbye, please? Yeah, bye. Thank you. That's it. Uh, episode God, 137, I think. Good, good. All done and dusted. We'll be back again next time here on the Good, Good Golf Podcast.